Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, we talk about transracial adoption through the eyes of two therapists who are supporting um, transracial adoptive families uh, in a transracial adoption support group. And so uh, the reason we wanted to have them on today is Teresa Davis and Antila Love, who have both been guests before. Um, both are uh, part of the staff family here at ETC. And so uh, we wanted to, to have them come and share what they've been learning, what they've been seeing and observing through this transitional adoptive support group they've had. Part of that reason is there's some really, really good stuff they've been able to talk through and share. And the more we talked about it, we said, hey, we ought to get them to come and share that with everybody. So today you're going to get kind of an inside look of what they're talking about, but also uh if you are somebody who is thinking about adopting transracially and you are just beginning to have those conversations or you know someone who is, this might be a great episode to share with them. Just some uh, pointers and some very clear uh, starting points in the conversation in uh, transracial adoption, which is obviously a very complex, um, layered issue. So uh, without any further ado, let's jump right into it. Here is Teresa Davis and Antila Love talking about transracial adoption. Well, today on the show, we've got Antila Love and Teresa Davis, and we are um, talking with both of them. They're both therapists, um, both um, working at Memphis Family Connection Center. But one of the things we want to talk to them specifically about is um, a new group that they've been working with, um, which is a transracial adoptive um, support. I don't, is that the right term for it? A support group? Like, um, or kind of a green group therapy? They're both nodding. Okay, great. Processing <laughs> so, group. Great. Okay. So, uh, you know, obviously historically like ETC has a large population of adoptive parents and of that population, obviously that statistically would mean significant numbers of transracial adoptive parents. Um, and I'll just share my, I won't ask anybody else to share. I'll share my own kind of experience up front of why I was interested for having you guys on. Um, I think when we went through the adoption process and, uh, I can look back now, 13 years into parenting at the early stages of preparation, like how we thought we should be prepared or things that our agency told us to read about or think about. I mean, it was like they were trying to make sure we had nothing we needed <laughs> to get started. And so I think what I know now, and what we've been fortunate enough to be in a community and learn has made me really passionate about making sure other families and, and folks on the way are also equipped. So that's enough talking from me. Um, what I would love, and why don't we, Teresa, start with you. Would you mind just kind of sharing kind of the heart behind this group and what, what your hope was when this was offered to the community? Sure. So as a therapist at MFCC, like JD said, we do have a lot of families that have adopted transracially. Um, so I have some clients in particular who I know are struggling with things such as like, how do I talk to my kids and my family at large about like race discrimination um, and different things like that? So this group came about with that thought, having a safe space for parents, guardians, you know, we don't discriminate anyone who would like to really just join in and get some information on how do I have these conversations that can be really difficult, that can be really uncomfortable? Um, what do I say? I don't want to say the wrong thing. Also, 
with these topics, you know, we can't expect certain people to educate us, right? So we want to make sure that we are talking with people who have the capacity to help educate and help us kind of decipher how do I do this? How do I walk this road that can be challenging at times? Yeah. And Tila, kind of along the lines of that, I mean, so you're a parent as well and familiar with the foster care system and you've, you've kind of got come at this in a, in a more unique angle as somebody who has um, started your counseling career after becoming a parent, all of that. Have there been things you've found from this group that um, have either surprised you or have been um, like particularly interesting for you to be a part of? I think so. Yes. Um, and I'm coming at it from kind of like being in community with families um, as like the hair person. <laughs> um, so that's kind of my first introduction into um, transracial parenting. And so that's kind of like all I, I was just like, okay, they need help doing hair. Let me go ahead and do that. You know, so I can really get like all of the in-depth of like really what some of the struggles are. Um, and so I have, you know, seen that in the group with, you know, our participants or I guess we can call them participants who like share certain things. I'm like, oh yeah, you do need to kind of think about that. Um, so yeah. <laughs> okay. So and elaborate in case somebody is like the hair person, what is she talking <laughs> about? Will you kind of share like what that means specifically? Yes. So really, it's like, um, we don't know what to do with our child's hair. Can you help us? So more just like braiding and different styles like that. So, Um, okay. Why don't we use that as a jumping off point? I think that can be, and and obviously if you have adopted transracially, it does not mean that it is a child of African descent that is coming into your home. It could be, uh, you know, from anywhere around the world, like any other culture, coming into your home means there's a transracial adoption, you know, happening. So this is not for everyone, but particularly with kids from African descent, hair is a huge issue. So would you mind as the hair person in this here, would you mind just kind of giving us an overview of, of how should, how should parents be thinking about this and why is it so important? Man, JD, you put me on the spot. Um, I am not a beautician, by the way. I'm just. But she could be. <laughs> um, I think first and foremost, just understanding how big of an impact that hair has on the black community. It is like a lot of pressure sometimes, um, even for somebody who like does my hair and my kids hair, you know, it's still like, oh man, we got to keep up with all the hairstyles. And, you know, you want to have the fro, but then you want to have it straight and then you want to have it in braids. And then you want, you know, so I'm, I love the versatility that we can have. Um, and also there's just a lot of pressure that comes with it. Um, and so having a child that is black and sick, cause they're going to see it at school. Um, why does my hair not do this? Or why did my parents know how to braid hair or why don't I? So, you know, and there's certain, um, I don't know, just like fitting in with hair is a big deal. Um, And for me, it it was heartbreaking to see around, you know, like bio child's hair is all done and perfect and everything. And then 
you know, foster adoptive child, it's like little pigtails kind of going all certain ways or like not combed out or things like that. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like that is not okay. And then on the child side, they're like, well, I want my hair to look like, you know, my white sisters or my adopted moms. Like, why is my hair not straight? So then there's an identity issue um, that's happening as well. So for anybody who is maybe thinking about adopting and they're freaking out right now, like, oh my God, well, how, I don't know how to braid hair. What am I supposed to do? Teresa, would you give them some words of wisdom? <laughs> like kind of just help, help people know, kind of here's, here's maybe some first places to think about that. And, and it doesn't have to be hair specifically, but intro into kind of thinking about transracial adoption. Well, just to speak on the hair piece a little bit, I think it's important for future adoptive parents or foster parents to also understand like there's a historical context as far as Black people and their hair. So for example, like discrimination based on the way your hair looks. So a lot of times professional hair, say that with air quotes, is seen as straight hair versus the way a lot of African-American, Black Americans hair actually grows out of their scalp. Um, So that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, As far as like braiding and styling, there are a lot of resources on YouTube. Um, So I would suggest that and also probably finding a beautician or someone who is well versed in the different varieties that hair can come in specifically black hair. So you know, there's not one way to do black hair. There's not one product that works for everyone's hair. It's really a journey to find what products actually work. So, yes. <laughs> okay, so that might be a, a, a good transition into the kind of the rest of this discussion, because I think one thing that is often thought about when it comes to adopting, there there is a mindset of, well, look, we don't. We, we don't care what race a child is who's coming into our home, what their cultural ethnic background is. We just want to love this child and provide a safe, healthy place to grow up and live, which is obviously a great place to start intentionally, right? Um, I think one thing that, uh, again, speaking from somebody who was kind of in these waters early on, like it is so easy to... Uh, forget and overlook all of the things that are kind of baked into our own genetics that we sort of just know inherently and we've always known about, right? So uh, when it comes to, you know, knowledge of hair, knowledge of culture, knowledge of, you know, cultural significance, like I, I, I might could have taught myself how to line up and fade my son's hair. However, like i I know the cultural significance, especially in the American South of the barbershop and that, that like, um, and that environment, it just so happens, like it has become one of my favorite places on earth to be. And so like, I, like, so that has been a thing, um, for him, for us to be able to go to together, but also that it, when there's jokes being made at school or when people are talking or whatever, like he's not left out of those things because he's got one. And I think, um, the thing that I would want to encourage just as the white person on the podcast, if I could just say this, like, the thing I want to encourage anybody listening who uh, gets kind of the tingles up their spine or starts to freak out thinking about that, like, well, I don't, I, what does that mean? So I'm just supposed to like do, yes, this means you're supposed to be willing to go to the hard places to to make room for your child to, to not have it as difficult when they're entering into those spaces. So if it means going to the barbershop and that makes you uncomfortable, 
That's okay. I have no advice. Let's do it. Let's go. You know, like let, let's go. And 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 if you're if you're needing to pep yourself up for that, it is the thought of, and this is what my baby needs, and I'm going to provide their need. Like we we wouldn't neglect like making food for our kids, and so we also don't need to neglect being able to go to the hard places um, to learn and be there with them. Um, with that comes uh, a lot of thought about just questions, and there are always questions that. Uh, this is just from the beginning of humanity. We've always had about people who don't look like us. And, and when there's a cultural um, difference that we don't understand, the, the natural defense is to defend our own cultural position and villainize, or at least kind of otherize, air quotes, the other position. So let's talk about that for a minute. It is very difficult for somebody who is coming into an environment um, where they're going to be parenting a child from a different cultural background if they don't have significant exposure or experience or relationships with people from that culture. What would your advice be on that front in terms of how to begin those relationships or begin kind of forming that community? And and how important is it for uh, your child to see um, people in the world who look like them in your home? I think one of the first steps to even like backtrack a little bit is it's okay for you to see color. Like I want you to see that I am a black woman because we are treated differently sometimes. And we also experience the world differently because of our skin color. So I think that's the first step is just to acknowledge that, hey, we are a different skin color. And that might mean we've had a different experience in life. Um as far as the like prep work. So thinking about where do you live? Are there people in your neighborhood that are gonna look like the children you're gonna adopt or foster? Thinking about like their doctors and just being around people who look like them is really important. And Tila, I'm gonna throw <laughs> part to you. <laughs> no, I agree completely. and. Our, I was going to just share something real quick. Our first foster son was white. Um, thankfully, I have a bunch of friends. And so he kind of was able to adapt wherever. Um, and back to the hair, <laughs> we did a visit once and his grandma was like, oh, his hair is greasy. <laughs> oh, yeah. White people wash their hair almost <laughs> every day. And I just wasn't <laughs> I'm not washing my hair every day, so I'm not washing his hair every day. So then it was like, I'm like, yeah, I should probably give him a little shampoo here and there, you know. Um, But all that to say, like, I have white friends, I have black friends. So he was able to kind of like see a multitude. And I think that's really important to rest. Like you were saying, the doctors that you're choosing, the location, if, if you're going to church, like what church are you going to? What school are they going to? You know, that sort of thing. And if you are in a predominantly white space, like you as the parent have to be responsible for having the hard conversations. Like if you're not going to surround yourself with people that look like your children, then you have to be willing to go there, you know, um, but obviously we want that to be the case for your child that they feel comfortable and seen and known and loved. That's awesome. So, you know, that, that brings up obviously all kinds of questions and geographical concerns, all that. Let's talk about kind of the, um, uh, the cultural piece. So when it comes to, um, food or different cultural traditions and all of that, like, um, 
I feel like this is kind of the same question as, as hair, but how important is it on the like food and maybe like location, like going to different restaurants or being in different places, like um, in, in cultures, there are some cultures where food is a significant, significant um, part of the cultural experience in a bedrock there. And what would your advice be if, if you're like, wow, we don't have any Ethiopian restaurants around here or we're not, I don't know where I can find a Brazilian restaurant. I'm not sure. I think one thing, like seek it out. Maybe you don't know, but it might be where you're located. You're just, maybe you don't go on that side of town or you don't know people that have been there. So Google is a great resource sometimes. In this case, it definitely would be one to just search. Um, Also, maybe one like fun thing you can do with your child is try to cook the food together. Like it might, you know, you might have to go through a few trials, but just give it a try and to show them that you are willing to learn about their culture and help them learn about a part of their culture as well. Um, What if you do that and your kid's like, "I, I don't like Vietnamese food. This is this is not my thing. Is that okay? I think I would kind of explore why. Like, why don't you like it? Um, And after that, like, if it's truly they don't like it, okay, that's fine. Maybe we explore, like, I don't know, fashion, movies, like still trying to look at their culture, but maybe just from a different angle. And then Tila, I think, you know, one, one question that that kind of brings up for me is um, within each culture, there are stereotypes and then there are the entirety of the uh, cultural experience where, where there's a huge variety, whether it's fashion, whether it's food. I mean, if we just think about like the white American experience, if we're just putting our, 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 if I'm putting myself in this conversation and I think about the experience of like growing up white in Iowa (laughs) is extremely different than growing up white in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. So like I have a completely different set of musical preferences and food preferences and all that, because I grew up in a different region of the country of origin for me and for my family. Like, um, and so when it comes to that individualized expression and all that, do you have any guidelines for how to kind of talk your kids through as they are beginning to just sort of explore their identity? And, um, how do you keep that from being something that they feel they have to live up to and, and how do you allow them to explore it and, and find their place within it? That's a great question. I need a minute to think about that. Um, and I will say being from East Tennessee and then coming to Memphis, like even that was a big deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I would come here and I'm like walking around campus, like smiling at people and, doing, and they're like, looking at me like, what is wrong with this girl? But that's what I was used to in Johnson City. Like yeah. people smile at you and they just, you know, if you make eye contact, there's more than likely a smile that will follow. And that didn't happen here in Memphis. So just like the air, and it's still Tennessee. Like I'm still in Tennessee. Um, so just like the area that you're in. And I would say, and that was hard for me because even like as I got to know people, they'd be like, well, you talk white or where are you? You must not be from Memphis. I'm like, no, I'm not, but I love it here. You know what I mean? Like I don't right. have to have the Memphis slang like that. I'm just not from here. So I don't know. Um 
So really just befriending people that don't look like you, I think is important. Um, And even like, I don't know. I just, I think the more you're open to community and different people groups and that sort of thing, you'll get that kind of holistic picture, I guess, because even being black, it's like not all black people are the same. Like we're not, we don't like the same things. We don't like the same music all the time. Um, So yeah, just exposure and kind of getting out there. Um, And I want to add to that because that's a great point. You know, there's not one way to be black or Mexican or like Dominican. So learning, I think as much as you can is really important to just show your children like, hey, all of this means that you're Dominican or all of this means that you're Mexican. There's not one way you have to talk, act, or like there's not one kind of food that you need to eat to be a part of your culture because culture is changing. It's dynamic. So like just giving them the tools to know, hey, people that look like me can like a lot of things, can eat a lot of things. Um, it's really important. Okay. Uh, turn the corner out of sort of that type of that side of the conversation into the discrimination, racism side of the conversation, the lighter side. Oh, just kidding. So it, I joke because it is so uncomfortable um, to think about this side of the conversation. And if you are a parent of a child, your worst nightmare is that child being isolated, singled out um, and made fun of or uh, worse for any reason, let alone the, the color of their skin or their cultural identity. And so um, as we've seen racially motivated shootings and um, hate crimes like rising in the in recent years and our awareness of them rising in recent years, um, does that, I, I assume, I mean, that doubles down obviously the importance of having these conversations, but how do you begin preparing your kids for experiencing those things without um, uh, causing them to live in fear of them? That's a really good question. And during our last group, Angela said something that I think really stuck with parents. So for a lot of kids of color who grow up with parents who are of color, these conversations start really young. So, you know, when you're stopped by the police, do X, Y, and Z, have your hands on the steering wheel, don't move too fast. So you know, and those families were starting young because we have to, but also if you are a transracial family, these conversations need to start early as well. So giving them the tools to know, hey, people should not treat you differently because of your skin color. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, it might happen. So here are some things that we can do to like try to keep you safe. And you don't want to... You don't want them to be fearful, but you do want to give them the facts, of course, developmentally, developmentally appropriate. Um, but starting to have those conversations as young as you can is really important. Antila, you want to add to that? I agree 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah, have those conversations early, um, not when you think the child is going to be ready, especially if they're in school like they kids talk (laughs) Um, 
And I would much rather me give accurate <laughs> information than you hearing something off the wall. And of course, peer pressure and what your friends say is going to hold more weight than what your parents say. So if that's like the first thing they're here, they're like, that's my friend is right. And I know it. And you're wrong. That's just, yeah. yeah. How kids are. Um, I'm wondering about how you got, and maybe this goes more to the individual counseling side of y'all's work as opposed to this, like, like supporting parents, but, um, for kids, whether it is, um, viewing or seeing stories of, or, um, seeing police camera of shootings or hate crimes that are happening, or even just having, like you were saying into the, like friends who are going to be talking about it because, Every family, no matter where you live, has that one friend at school who has unfettered access to social media at all times. And they're like the the social media drug kingpin at school, like doubling out like, oh, well, here's what really happened. And let me show you. So it is unavoidable for most of our kids um, to not know about current events that are big and happening in the world. Um, when those types of things are happening, um, that becomes a very sticky space for um, parents of a different cultural background, engaging with their kids around those topics. How, um, how should we approach those things with our kids when there's, when there's tough stuff like this happening in the world? As far as the video piece, personally, I would, I'm not watching it just because I live this experience every day and it's, it can be really traumatizing for people of color to see um, these events play out. So I would suggest not viewing. I mean, unless you, I wouldn't view it. Antila, what do you think? Yeah, that's tough. Sometimes I think it is beneficial to actually see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the parent side, the dismissive part of me wants to be like, you think it's hard? Try walking in our shoes. You know what I mean? Like, buck and do it um, so that your kids can have exposure and you can explain what's going on. But the gentle side of me is like, you know, take your time. If you don't feel like that's what your family needs right now, then don't do it. So I think it's both and. Yeah, I, 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 you know, we we are, this is raw for all of us in the city of Memphis because we're coming off of a, a pretty horrific um, event in the death of Tyree Nichols. And, um, and, you know, it was a conversation that we knew immediately as soon as it started, as it began to kind of bubble under the surface, we were talking about it, my wife and I, and, and knew, and unfortunately, even for our youngest child, who's five, not even close to the first time that we've needed to talk to the, our kids about this. Um, and the, just even in the last five years, but um, it, that conversation gets really tricky. I mean, Teresa, you say instantly, like, I'm, I'm not going to watch that because it, like this experience isn't, I know of this experience and I don't need to traumatize myself by watching it. I, I have tended to sit more as a parent in this space who did not grow up black and who did not grow up in a community where I was witnessing these things happening uh, often. Like I often side on for me personally, um, being as informed as I possibly can. I, I think there is something to um, 
as a parent, knowing factually, because you have seen something or read details of something or learned as much as you can about a story, how horrific or, or not it might be. Um, there is something really powerful about knowing that experience. You can't live that experience, but we can know as much as we possibly can. Um, and then the community piece, would you guys speak to the power of having um, people in your lives um, from different backgrounds in moments like this, where there might be questions that you can't answer because you didn't live these experiences? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about that the whole time, just having people in your life who you can walk alongside with um, and, and not living in isolation. Right. And having someone who, like you were saying, JD, you can learn as much as you can, but you don't have that like firsthand experience because it's just not your experience. Yeah. So having someone who does walk that every day, maybe like come join the conversation or speak with your child and answer some questions. Maybe you feel like you can't answer, I think is really powerful and giving a different perspective. So like watching the video. So as a white man, you would watch it because your experience is different than me as a black woman who would not view it. Yeah, and I was going to say, again, we are not all the same. We don't have the same experience. For me, there was a little bit of like blatant racism, but a lot of the racism in East Tennessee is like microaggressions that I didn't even know about until I came here. I I wasn't really followed in the store in Johnson City, but here I have been. And so it's like, okay, me coming from East Tennessee, I have a different experience than somebody that has grown up in Memphis. So I, you you cannot find like your token black person. Like you need a mix of people from different backgrounds. And of course we can go on and on about this, but all of our stories are not the same and we cannot be placed in like that same category. And this is probably, I would hope this is obvious to most people. Um, these types of conversations are not introductory conversations for your kids with different people, right? It's not like something really horrible happened and we've brought someone to the house Our today. friend over, right? <laughs> about it. Like, you haven't met him yet, but he's going to talk to you about this. <laughs> like, um, not the best idea. Um all right. So this conversation, I mean, you, y'all, you've said this already, this conversation could go hours and hours and hours around like a thousand different directions. Um, and I would probably prefer for us to have a lot more conversation about this in the future. So um, to round out this conversation today, like um, what would you guys want um, both as, as black women in, in a space where you are heavily exposed to transracial adoption? Like what, do you have any kind of final thoughts or like one more thought for parents who are either thinking about adoption or they are um, just looking for help right now and they're wanting to get on the right path. Any, any final thoughts for them um, as you're listening? Well, come join us on the third Tuesday of the month. That's yes. <laughs> we are virtual. So please, wherever you are, you can attend. Okay. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes in case people do want to attend um, virtually. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, I would, I would suggest you doing that. Um, I do want to add, yeah. um, it's okay to be uncomfortable. Don't let that deter you from having conversations or having experiences because you feel some anxiety about it because 
nine times out of 10, your foster adoptive child is feeling uncomfortable, probably, you know, not a lot, but they're probably feeling uncomfortable quite a few times. So. Yeah. And I have just one more thing. Sorry. Don't feel like you have to be in a rush. Like I would rather somebody do the heavy work, like personally of like knowing your, your triggers, kind of what you learned growing up. Yes. Um, I would much rather you take the time to do that and to research, like, what will this mean if I'm a white mom raising black children? Like, what does that really look like? I'd rather you take that time to, like, really research and do than just to jump in it and then be kind of lost. So just take your time. (laughs) Awesome. Guys, thank you all both so much for joining us. Thanks. Well, again, uh, not enough time at all to cover uh, the topic of transracial adoption. It it is a vast, vast topic that spans a lot of different um, uh, layers of conversation and and it's very complex, but uh, we hope that was a very helpful episode for you guys. If you're, if you're listening through that lens today, and hopefully if you are just starting that conversation as a family, uh, that could be a helpful, helpful place to start. I actually don't have any announcements this week. And so uh, without any further ado, I will say goodbye to you this week and we will see you next week. 